The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, together we just sang about casting our cares on you. A privilege that you have created for us. The, the ability, the, the permission to cast cares on you. To lay them in your hands and leave them there knowing that you are wise, that you are strong, that you are good. You'll take care of our cares and take care of us. This would not be natural. It should not even be dreamed of in a world in which we are rebels against a sovereign king. But you have created this privilege for us, your people. You have opened the way into the throne room and you invite us to come and cast our cares at your feet to look for from your hand mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. You have done that in Christ for us, your people. And we say thank you. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would use this passage and this, this story about this event that happened long ago, that you would use it to remind us and to refresh us, to re-encourage us in the midst of our cares here. To remind us of you, and remind us of this privilege that you have won for us, this promise that you issue to us, that you care for us. So speak, Lord, make your word clear. Remove from our presence whatever may be a distraction to us, whatever may be a, a hindrance to us, whether it's, it's physical in some way or spiritual in some way, if there is sin that we need to confess, then lead us in that even now. If there are other physical barriers, Lord, would you address them and would you, would you draw our attention to your word? Spirit of God, would you have your way with us to teach and guide and, and correct and encourage? Lift up your people, Lord. Save your redeemed let us see it and rejoice in it. So take your word and use it this morning, we pray. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we ask it for his glory and for the good of us, his people. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 8, and we've been in this chapter for a few weeks now, considering the importance of properly hearing Jesus' teaching, the message about Jesus that's coming from Jesus about the grace of God available in Jesus. That's what he's talking about as he travels from town to town to town preaching. It's important that we hear that. And last week, we looked at a sub-point in verses 16 to 18, expanding on, we took a little point and expanded it, expanding on a way of considering this proper hearing that's so important, but considering it differently, kind of like from the other side. We looked at the alternative way the alternative to hearing the good news. Remember, there's a, there's a fork in the road there. There's, there's one way, listen to what Jesus teaches, and there's another way, and we were considering the other way, the alternative way that people still then and still today embrace the mistaken belief that there's another way other than what Jesus is talking about, 
by which we can become acceptable to God. We saw this in verse 18. There's one there who does not have intimacy with God, but who thinks he does. That's the mistake. The mistaken path, what is it? I mean, negatively, it's, it's not what Jesus is talking about. Positively, what is it? Well, if we put a name on it, we, we could put the name works righteousness. The belief that by my works, by what I do, I can become righteous, right in God's eyes, that I can gain right standing, become acceptable to him. The language that we might use in every day, how I do determines how God views me. If I do good, he views me positively and accepts me, and if I don't, he sets me aside and is angry with me. That's the mistake. The mistake that Jesus has been sent to correct, and he's clarifying as he's teaching again and again and again that there is no one good, no, not one. None of us have any hope in our, in our works of doing the good that God requires and making ourselves acceptable to him. There is no one good. Our works count for nothing in righteousness. There's only Jesus and his good works, his good, pure, holy nature that then, replacing us, he is cursed where we should be cursed, and we receive blessing that he should receive. This is where we find righteousness, and this is how we are accepted before God, because of Jesus and his good works. We talked about that last week, how that's how one becomes a Christian, and how even as Christians, we have to think about that and remember it every single day, because we still, even as Christians, we are prone to lean back towards, to kind of drift back towards this thinking of how I do determines how God views me. Even as a Christian, it's easy to think like that. It's, it's kind of constant. So we need to remind ourselves and remember that we, you, you Christian, because of the work of Jesus, not because of your own work, you stand accepted before him, an object of his love, his affection, his grace. And so we talked about last week, and now as we continue on in the passage, the flow of chapter 8 changes. If, if you just look at the, uh, some editions that have red letters, you notice there's a lot of red letters in the first half and not many in the second half, because we're going to move from Jesus' teaching to Jesus' doing. There's a change here that Luke puts in front of us, Jesus acting. It's certainly meant to teach us, meant to teach us something about who he is and how we are to respond to him. But it's doing so in a little different way. Luke's lining up several stories here, beginning today, that's going to show us something about Jesus, his identity, who he is, particularly his authority over several different areas of life. This morning, nature. So this begins what will be a theme over the next several weeks, Jesus' authority over various different things, this morning nature. So here's the main point I'm building towards, very simple. Trust Jesus, the Lord over nature. Trust Jesus, the Lord over nature. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage, verses 22 through 25. And then I'll draw two observations that come from two questions asked in the text. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. 
One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Luke chapter 8. As I said, I got two observations coming from two questions. Here's the first. Who is this? This is the Lord, perfect man and sovereign ruler over all of nature. Here's the first question. Who is this? And the answer, this is the Lord, perfect man and sovereign ruler over all of nature. This question is the final note struck in the passage And it's just left hanging there. Asked and left hanging for every reader to consider, to to ponder, to work on. They asked, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who then? Consequently, looking at that, what we just saw happen. Consequently, who is this? That's, that's the question, so we, we should look at what they were looking at, what, what they just saw. This story occurs in, in other Gospels and has various details, but we're considering what God has told us through Luke, and here we just get a few details, not very many. We're told that he get in, gets into a boat with his disciples, and it's perhaps a medium-sized, think of it as a medium-sized, maybe a sailing boat, because it says they set sail. And that might mean just that they, that they took off, but it might also mean literally that they set sail. This, this is perhaps a sailboat, and it's not teeny. It, it's of medium size. It has the disciples in it, which in this chapter is probably more than just the 12. Occurring throughout this chapter, beginning back in verse eight, eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we have the 12 and some other people too. That's the disciples through the chapter, It's certainly big enough to include a number of people and big enough to have a kind of a separate area where Jesus can lie down and sleep and not be underfoot. So we don't know exactly what kind of boat this is, but we know it's not a little bitty rowboat, which tells us something about the magnitude of the storm that came. Much has been written and said about the geography of this area and how it's prone to to sudden storms, as happens here, and surely this is a big one. It creates a, a, a set of dramatic waves that are coming over the sides of this boat and filling it up with water. It's filling with water, not from rain, but from waves. This medium-sized, not little bitty, this, this medium-sized boat, there are waves coming over the side of the boat. But the emphasis, as it's describing real danger, The emphasis is kept on the people. 
course, it's a reasonable way to talk about it, but it doesn't, doesn't point us the boat was about to sink. They were filling with water. They were in danger. Of course, the boat was too, but our eyes are kept on the people. They were in real danger. Many of these guys are fishermen and have lived their lives on the water. And they're in danger, and they're beginning to panic. This is, this is a real problem. They're beginning to panic. Surely they're trying to get the water out of the boat, but they can't. They're being swamped. And in a panic, they finally come to Jesus and wake him up. Master, Master, we are perishing. And the grammar, it's right now, it's happening. We're going down. Not, this is becoming difficult. We are in trouble. We're dying. Master, wake him up. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. As the disciples put it, he commands them and they obey him. Command and obey. Not gradually, not eventually, suddenly. It ceased and there was calm. Not even just kind of dialing down. Not slower waves, lower waves, gentle waves, kind of gentle rocking. Raging! Nothing. On a dime. Weird. Have you ever been on, on water in, in a becalmed sea or lake? That in itself is a little bit odd. It's so still. It feels bizarre. That would be shocking coming from raging to nothing. All of a sudden. And it happened when Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waves. The adrenaline is still running through their bodies. When they look at this and say, given that, who is this? Afraid and marveling. I mean, what, what a mix. Afraid, because I'm in touch with something other here, and wow, that was amazing. Fear and marveling together. Who is this? End of story. That's what we're supposed to see, and that's what we're supposed to ask, and that's the question the text answers for us. If we move back through this, we see a couple of elements in this passage that when pieced together, point out for us something about the identity of Jesus. The initial piece of the answer. Jesus is the one who controls the course of our existence, of our world, of our lives. His control is obvious when you see him, how he deals with the storm, you know, Stop. It's obvious there, and it's the first thing the disciples would have noticed. But Luke, as he's writing this for readers under the inspiration of God, he wants us who are reading it to see more than just what they saw in the moment. Consider the quote of verse 22. What's the point of that quote? Surely Jesus always dictated the itinerary. Jesus always made the decisions about where we go, when, how. 
But those decisions are usually left unstated. We don't read, for instance, let us go down to Capernaum by the main highway. We don't read, let us turn off and go to Nain. Not there. Surely it's always happening. Of course, it was always his call, but but this is told here. We're told this explicitly for a reason. Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. The normal behavior, normal mode of operation is made explicit. Needlessly so. Except for the fact that it makes us explicitly aware it's Jesus' fault that the disciples are in the boat on the lake at this time. He got them into this. He directed them to there at that moment. His initiative. He caused it. His fault. They've been led into the storm by Jesus. That's the first piece of this. And and like with any puzzle, you only have one piece. You don't really have anything yet. But we are told this so that we see this. He is the one who controls all the events and all the circumstances of life. Where, when, and how we move. Another piece. Jesus is the one who is himself perfectly human. Completely, honest to goodness, man. Perfectly so. He is perfectly, peacefully dependent on the care of his Father. He is the perfect Son. Once again, if we're the disciples looking at this, and notice what I'm, what I'm doing here. You can learn something here about how to study the Bible. We aren't supposed to try to imagine ourselves into the disciples' spot. We're supposed to look at what's written. The disciples would have thought, nothing going on here. He's had a long day. There's nothing to do. Sure, go to sleep. But that's underlined for us. The short story three times points out his asleepness. He fell asleep. And the contrast between him asleep and what's going on all around him, him asleep and how other people are dealing with it, the contrast is is stark. He's he's a real, honest-to-goodness man. He is sleeping like people sleep. And he's really sleeping while the waves are coming over the side of the boat. That's a rough sea. He's asleep. While the sail's flapping and people are are wrestling with it, he's asleep. People are panicking and yelling to one another, sleep. Verse 24, they went and woke him at the last minute of fear and panic. And then again, he awoke. He was really, truly asleep in apparent mortal danger along with the rest of them, sleeping like a baby. What are we to make of that? Why is that emphasized for us? Well, because we look at him and the disciples, the people of God, 
panicking, and they're in the same boat. Literally. There's a contrast here about human, about fear, and about human and rest. This is the sun. This is the right and perfect sun. This is the sun like the sun of Psalm 3. Remember Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes, many rising against me, dangers and threats all around, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who are set against me all around. That's the psalmist, the perfect son. Danger all around. Yep, real danger. I will sleep. Why? Because I'm strong and mighty and powerful and I got this? No, because you are a shield all around me. This is the sun showing for us what dependence looks like. It's, it's, not, it's not like waking up would be wrong. It's not like waking up in a storm is sinful or something like that. Jesus probably did usually wake up when it rained outside. There's a contrast being shown here. Panic and profound sleep. Rest. And of course, final piece, when he awakes... He has alarming, shocking power and authority. He awakes, and by word, shows great power, but more than just power, authority. The words rebuke, the words command, the word obey, those are words about authority, not just power, right power. He is the one who is not just stronger than the waves, but he is the one that they recognize, nature recognizes, you are our boss. You are our ruler to whom we listen and obey. It's authority. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they stop by his direct word which takes things an interesting step further. It would be remarkable, but, but not shocking. If he had, had awakened, and maybe he had acted like an Old Testament holy man or like an Old Testament prophet and had prayed to the Lord, Lord, save us, and God had responded. It would be remarkable if he had done something like Moses, maybe, done something that he had been previously commanded to do, lift up your staff and part the water. I mean, Moses exercised great power over water, didn't he? by doing what he was told to do. If Jesus had awakened and acted like an intermediary, like they expected him to, that's why they woke him up, they're not looking for another set of hands to bail the water. Do something. Pray to God. Jesus says, no need. Stop. Direct and immediate word from him. It's a spontaneous. He, by his word, immediately overrules the laws of nature. The wind stops. The water stops. He shocks them as he, 
a real, genuine man in a human nature who was just sound asleep awakens and commands nature. Acting like the deliverer of Psalm 107 who is Yahweh Himself. The Lord. All capital letters in your Bible. Psalm 107. It's a psalm about Yahweh's deliverance of the redeemed of His people. Redeemed is the word used there. And in that psalm they are pictured, the people of God, the redeemed, are pictured in various dilemmas. They are wandering in the desert wastelands and they are trapped in the dark shadows of death and they suffer under sin. In verse 23 of Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships. They saw the deeds of the Lord of Yahweh, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea The courage of God's people melted. They reeled and staggered at their wit's end. Pause. Isn't it interesting? Who got them into that there in Psalm 107? Whose fault is it that they're in the middle of a storm? Did you hear? He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the... It's God's fault that they're in the storm. God led them into the storm. Interesting, huh? And the courage of the people melted. Verse 28 Then they cried to the Lord, to Yahweh, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quieted. You read Psalm 107 you say, who is this then? And the answer is obvious in the text. It is the Lord. It It is Yahweh God Almighty. He takes them into the water and quiets it. So who is it in Luke 8? Who is this then that got us into this mess and then got us out? Put together the pieces. He is a man with human nature for sure. Perfect man, perfectly dependent on God the Father. But he is a man who controls the seasons and moments and timing of all of our human existence. He rules life. He determines the places where we are, when we are, and what it's like when we're there. He commands nature, wind and waves, rain and floods, He commands every tsunami that ever overwhelmed any island. He commands every hurricane that sweeps through a city and every drought that crushes a crop. Every earthquake that takes down buildings and every sinkhole that swallows up cars. We call these acts of God, and for once we're right. His hand is on all, Jesus' hand is on all of life. All of weather and all of nature. 
Now, as we move through chapter 8, we'll see other things that he reigns over and controls, the demonic illness, death. But this point made right here is particularly emphasizing nature, and we need to do a, a little bit of, for us to feel the weight of this, we need to do a little bit of kind of translation back through time, because we're modern people. We live in air conditioning. We've got X-shaped structures in our houses that protect them from falling down earthquakes, we're modern people, so we don't fear nature in quite the same way that most of the world for most of history has. But what nature is, is the thing that swoops down from beyond the horizon and destroys everything, and you can't stop. You don't have weathermen who predict it's coming. You don't have the technology to protect yourself. You are at the whim of Mother Nature. And you sit in a boat and you sense that. And then you realize, actually, Mother Nature is in the palm of his hand. Who is he? He is a man who holds all of life right here and does with it as he wills. So maybe we've got to move a little bit beyond nature. We, we sense some of the fear of of hurricanes and tsunamis and floods and droughts, but we have ways of irrigating and protecting and insulating. So maybe we should think about larger powers before which we feel powerless. Cultural forces, governmental things and elections and tides of, of, of thinking. Things that we say, I can't put my hand on that, I can't stop that, but I don't know where it's going, but I'm afraid of it. That, that's the essence of the nature threat. While he holds in his hand all of nature, he holds in the hand all of our existence. And as we see, with a word, commands it. Who is he? He is God the Son come in flesh. And he reigns. I invite you to consider that if you've never thought that through before. The good news is I can add one more phrase to that because if I leave it right there, He is God the Son come in flesh and He reigns. That's a problem for us who resist Him. But notice the story. What is He doing? He's reigning to save Consider that. If you've never considered that before, if Jesus is still kind of somebody on the outside or somebody that you're kind of examining, you, please consider He's God who reigns and He has come in the moment to save. He will not always be saving. He will one day be judging. I invite you to consider that. But Christian, really, this is for us. And as we move towards the second point, what I would ask, you're a Christian, what I ask you to think about, do you see how Jesus deliberately has raised a question in front of we who are reading the Bible this morning here in this church? 
raise the question in front of Theophilus, the one to whom Luke wrote. In front of the church, in front of believers, he's raised the question, who is this Jesus? Because he means to set that right next to all the stuff that we fear. We, we who are Christians, we fear. All the powers that seem to reign over us, out from under which we can't escape. We sense the storm. We sense the, the violent wind. We sense the flood. We are filling up and we are dying as... Are we? Seems like. Are you? Who is Jesus? That's the question he's raised for you to consider, which leads us to the second point. The second question and the second point. Where is your faith? Jesus is Lord and with us. Trust him and do not be afraid. Jesus is Lord and with us. Trust him and do not be afraid. The question, where is your faith, obviously is asked by Jesus, verse 25, and he asks it of his disciples, not of the world in general. This is directed towards those who are out from the world. The disciples are in our language. He's asking Christians, Christian, where is your faith? So he's not actually talking about how to get saved. In our language, he's talking to saved people about your faith today your faith in the midst of this situation. Where is it? Where is it? Applied, daily faith, we might say. A faith that he thinks we should have in the face of this real danger. It is a real danger. A faith he thinks we should have rather than the panic of verse 24. That panic is a faithless fear, an unbelieving, fearful response. He expects us to respond like sons of God, like him. Like Psalm 3. In the midst of the danger, surrounded by enemies and threats all around, you are a shield around me, I lie down and sleep. That's what he wants. That's what he, he calls us to. And, and obviously, literal sleep is not the issue. It is how Jesus models it, how Jesus shows it. But what sleep, what's, what's kind of contained in sleep? Sleep is the surrendering of initiative. Sleep is the surrendering of, of self-control, of self-protection, of, of self-determination, it's a surrendering of that to depend on to trust in someone else who will keep watch while you're off. Psalm 3, Jesus, the Son of God, the Daughter of God, in faith, not just exhaustion, in faith turns off and entrusts himself to some other one, a shield all around that's what Jesus is thinking. That's what he's expecting. A rest from anxiety that comes from rock-solid assurance that God has me.
Why does he want that? Why, why? Not, importantly, not because he's irritated with you, you of little faith. He wants, think of real simple. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus looks at this situation and says, what would be blessing for my people and honoring to my Father would be faithful dependence in them on him. Would be a trust in them of his shielding, of his care for them in me. That's why he wants faith. That's why he challenges that's why he creates the situation that challenges the lack of faith. Not because you are a failure, but because I want what's good for you and I want what's honoring for him. You whom I love, my father and my people. So when he looks at you, church, he looks at you, Christian, in the midst of the troubles that he brings your way to show you this, when he looks at you and sees a little faith, Please do not consider yourself chastised, judged failure, but consider yourself man, woman, in need, and Jesus graciously bringing before me my lack so as to fix, so as to, to build up in me something that is precious and of great value in me and would lead one day, says First Peter 1, to an honoring of the Lord and a great honoring of me. Faith more precious than gold. He wants to build that in you. Where is your faith? Too often, we live in anything but faith, but in fear. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, not because dangers arise. Dangers are assumed. Dangers will arise, threats will exist, enemies will be all around us. We are small people. We live in a world full of powers that we can't control. Those things are assumed. They don't cause our problem. They just surface the problem. A problem arises when we do not answer the first question properly, who is this Jesus? And we don't answer it and properly in light of the gospel. So maybe a different way I can ask the question, who is this Jesus, and where is he in relation to you, Christian? He is God the Son, the Lord over nature, and he holds all of life in his hand. That's who he is. And it is no problem for him. It is no challenge. He doesn't enter into a, a wrestling match with the wind. He just says, enough, and it's done. That's who he is. That is often forgotten. But perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps more frequently what is forgotten or answered incorrectly is where is he in relation to you? And the answer is that he is with you. He is with us. 
the disciples should have realized the boat's not going down. Jesus is in it. I don't understand everything about Jesus. I might get the, the answer to that first question. I might get that kind of off. But he's in the boat with me. Which, what I'm not trying to say is, like, when we say, I'm in the same boat with you, what we mean is that I'm, I'm facing the same difficulty, I'm struggling through the same stuff that you are. That, that's what we mean by I'm in the same boat with you. I don't mean that. He's not struggling with it. He's not wrestling with the same difficulties. He's not with us, in the boat with us in that sense. What I mean is that we are in the midst of trouble, and he's with us. He's with you. Wherever it is that you are, and you should consider he, the one who reigns over all things and providentially accomplishes every single thing that he desires, he's actually responsible for me being here too in the midst of this terrible thing. Now, that is not to, that is not to eliminate, to exclude human responsibility, human choices, human sin. But I'm saying nothing happens to you that Jesus didn't say yes to first. You're in it by his decision. It's his fault you're there. And he's there with you, the one who reigns over it who controls every twist and turn of that. Why is he there? And why hasn't he answered? Why hasn't he changed? Why hasn't he affected it? Look, he has the power to just say, done, and it will be done. But he hasn't. Why not? Where's your faith? That's why. Because your faith is of greater worth. It's of more precious than anything you can imagine, anything you could have. You might have the security of your life and not have faith, and you'd be a pauper. He wants to give you something of greater value. He wants to give you faith because what faith is, is faith is, remember the two people he loves? Us and his Father. Faith is the connection of these two and a dependence on, a, a sitting behind the shield. He wants that for you because it's good for you. It's good for you. It is precious to you to walk through all of life knowing, able to figuratively lie down and sleep and surrender myself my self-responsibility, my self-burden, my self-initiative, my self-protection, surrender that to the God who is wise and good and strong. He wants that for you. And from time to time, he may, he may create very difficult situations that will surface in you this issue. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Apart from the gospel, that's a good question. But Christian, we don't live apart from the gospel. You never have to answer that question apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel, can God be trusted? I don't know. That's a good question. You never are to live there. You always live in the gospel, which means you always live under the precious reality that here was a faithful son, perfectly dependent because of all of his good works, right with God and deserving of all blessing and all prosperity and all protection from God, and yet this son was cast over the side, surrendered to the waves, sunk down into the depths of death and raised out of it, as we're going to celebrate next week.
You live in that reality. So you live knowing that him with me, that one with me, means that even despite all of my mess, I am accepted by God. I will never be surrendered to the depths of death. He was for me. He was, I won't be. He was, you won't be. You in Him have been raised to life and live now with Christ. You don't ever have to live wondering, can God be trusted? Indeed, He can be trusted. He has sworn Himself to you as a sure deliverer. You are the redeemed. This is good news to you. This is good news to you. He wants to raise in front of you a question. Every time you are tempted to think and to wonder, are there things outside of His control? Are there things that are that are beyond Him? Are there things that He's unaware of? Are there things that, that will, in fact, destroy me because maybe I have messed up and God wants me destroyed? Now, I don't suspect that any of us would say yes to that right now, but every one of us says yes to that in the moments of darkness. That's where the fear comes from. When the water's coming over the sides of the boat, we instinctively say, ah! because we think he has left me. I'm on my own. And I just realized I can't. Take that one step further. Jesus says, good. Now realize I can and I'm with you. Because of the gospel, not because of any good thing you've done, because of the gospel, I am with you, and I can. Trust me. Where is your faith? He is the Lord. He's the Lord. He is God Almighty come in flesh. And He is with you and nothing will befall you. Nothing can befall you that has not come through His hand, is not determined by Him to be twisted, turned, shaped, conformed to His plan for your good. So trust Him and do not be afraid. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we worship you as God Almighty. You sent by the Father to redeem us, to save us. We say thank you. And we praise you that because of the work you have done, we can come into the presence of the Father and ask him for grace and mercy to help us in time of need. So, Father, would you please, for your people here in this room, some of them probably even now, and maybe some of them tomorrow, who will find themselves beneath powers they cannot control. Father, would you give to those ones of yours, your redeemed, would you give them keen, 
clear, strong, powerful awareness that you were God and that you were theirs. You're with them. That whatever it is they face is under your hand. That they are not abandoned. And would you use that, Father, to generate in them faith and even joy while sorrowing? Give them grace, as 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3 talks about, 4 talks about, to not fear that which is fearful. Give all of your people grace to not fear that which is fearful. Father, some here probably, I, I assume some here don't know you, some who hear this don't know you, commend to them their need, the fact that you're the only answer to it. Show them Christ, Lord and Savior, and one day, judge. Make them aware that he is the only hope to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. And because he has been himself crucified, he can surely deliver. He can pay. He can atone. It works. He was raised. Make them aware of that and call them to faith, please, Lord. Build your church. Honor yourself in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.